Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast. This is a Macro Matters edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we bring in Anna Wong, the Chief Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence for the United States. Anna, thanks for coming back on FIC Focus. Um, so last week we had the uh, Federal Reserve meeting. It was Jerome Powell's opportunity to not only increase interest rates but also address uh, directly some of the uh, some of the banking system angst that was going on. And um, you know, our model, our natural language processing model, suggested that his opening remarks of the press conference were significantly more dovish than uh, they had been. Uh, he made less hawkish comments as well as more dovish comments, uh, according to our model. Is that the way that you read it? And, and do you think that, um, you know, what he said lines up with, um, you know, your feeling about what the, the, the Federal Reserve has to do in order to continue to get inflation down, but also maintain financial stability? Yeah, so our model also agrees with your NLP model. Our model is not an NLP model, but it's a kind of standard macroeconomic model that um, looks at the 30 minutes window around before and after an FOMC meeting um, based on asset prices and all that. And it's interpreting the uh, FOMC meeting last week as very dullfish on par with the dovishness of last November's meeting when Powell included uh, in the policy statement a signal that they're about to downshift the, the pace of rate hike. And we furthermore took this dolphish signal in, that our model is uh, suggesting and we feed it into this state-of-the-art uh, macroeconomic model that um, that's based on this very, um, 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 you know, the, this this paper that was published last year among the academic circle, uh, which captured a lot of attention within the central banking community. That paper showed that, in fact, the lags of monetary policy is very uh, much shorter than one thought previously. So we included, we added financial conditions index into this model, and we saw that the peak effect of a monetary policy a shock on financial conditions is only one to three months, which means that if you add up all the cumulative monetary policy shock since last March from a year ago to now, um, we the model is telling us that the cumulative tightening effect on financial markets would be almost completely dissipated by middle of this year. Much of it is because of the dovish signal from last week. So I think that this is a pretty like a, a so, pretty, so when we look uh, at the market finding. and what the market's currently pricing for the for the Fed, the, we're we're pricing um, 50 basis points of interest rate cuts by year end, plus another cut in January of 2024. Um, you know, so based on your 
views on how the economy will develop, do you think that that's reasonable? So I guess if you can review quickly how you think that the economy will develop over the next, you know, six to nine months, and then maybe the, the next year after that, uh, because obviously there will be expectations that will be built into markets. Um, you know, do, do you think that the market's getting ahead of itself, or do you think that the market's appropriately priced for the risks that are currently being, uh, uh, you know, showing themselves in terms of the financial sector and and uh, some of the other data that's, that's kind of more mixed, uh, at least I would say in, in the concurrent period. I think the market is ahead of itself. And we look at this from a variety of angle. Um, so first we look at it through uh, a historical perspective. So uh, we looked at the past 140 years of data and uh, looked at how banking crises in the past 140 years were due to inflation and GDP growth. And essentially our takeaway from that exercise is that first you need large output losses to generate um, the, the average amount of uh, disinflation. So to the average amount of slowdown in inflation rate in the past banking crises is about around, I think, 1.5 to 2 percentage point. But that's that amount of dis disinflation, which, by the way, is not enough to get us from our current 6% CPI to 2% uh, Fed objective, because that's for a percentage point. So even if you think that the current credit crunch is as severe as like the average banking crisis in the past 140 years, which would generate an output loss on par with great financial crisis in 2007, you, are, you still don't get enough to get us back to 2% um, uh, inflation target. That's point number one. Number two, uh, the Fed has been very, you know, for, resolute in how, how they see their priority currently is to bring inflation back down. And uh, they also have a full employment uh, mandate, but uh, Powell is able to, you know, square the circle by saying that price stability is important for long-term employment, uh, the full employment objective. And so is with financial stability. So most uh, uh, banking crises begin not because of high interest rate, but because of high inflation and low growth. So whenever, if, even if the Fed doesn't do anything, inflation is gonna, expectations gonna drift higher, then uh, markets are gonna, uh, price in this inflation premium. So nominal interest rate was going to increase anyway if inflation was going to uh, drift higher. So as I see it, the culprit of this credit crunch is really high inflation. So the and I think Powell um, um, also sees that. I th I do believe that the, the Fed still have inflation as the priority, uh, beating inflation. So, so is there priority. a risk here then, based on what you said, that maybe so, you know the Federal Reserve actually does increase rates even more than the the market's expecting, or uh, you know our view I think has been pretty well aligned with with yours that the Fed's unlikely to cut later this year because of the. Um, the fact that the, the our view that inflation won't fall as quickly as the market's expecting, um, but is there a risk that we go the other way? And and I only say that because you know clearly the market doesn't think that that's the case, and um, you know there there 
the consensus is largely that the Fed's going to hike one more time um, and and then be done with, with interest rate uh, with interest rate increases. But but based on what you said, there there sounds like there might be the risk that they have to keep going at some point in the future. Or or am I misreading what you said? Uh, that's exactly uh, it. So let me talk about my baseline. My baseline is for the Fed to get to 5.25, just as the consensus has, and the Fed will pause at 5.25. Um, and our baseline is for inflation, core PCE inflation, which is what the Fed uh, mostly target. Um, I mean, not target, but focus on, they target the headline PCE. Uh, we expect both headline PCE and core PCE to end the year in, uh, at about 4%. Um, and if, if the super core inflation, the part that Powell likes to focus on, which is core services excluding housing, if that's as sticky as as Powell says it is because if if core uh, services excluding housing is really a function of the labor slack and even our model which finds that um, the monetary policy lag on financial conditions is instantaneous even that model says that the, the lag of unemployment rate to a monetary policy shock is as long as you know almost two years it means that the labor market would continue to be pretty strong, especially if there's structural shortage problem that, uh, which Powell seems to believe there is, that then this uh, disinflation and wage growth would be very gradual or even, um, it's, it's, it's kind of very hard to, I, I find it not yet very convincing that, uh, to, to argue that wage growth is gonna decelerate rapidly. I see very little evidence of that. So if our baseline um, if our baseline case comes to pass, then the year ends at four percent. And um, you know, a Fed Fed funds the Fed wants to bring real rates to about 1.5, 1.6%. So really 5.5 around that you know vicinity in in terms of nominal Fed funds rate is where they want to be throughout this year. So for the market to expect so much rate cuts um, in the second half of this year, they must be assuming that there's a deep recession coming in the second half of this year. And that deep recession got to have a both historical average kind of disinflationary effect. Because as I was saying, even with a massive banking crisis, you cannot get it down to from six to two um, within the rest of in the rest of the year, so I see inflation persisting uh, between uh, three to five percent with high probability in the next two years, basically. And um, so that's my baseline: the Fed to pause. But I I see a serious risk that this pause is just an intermission, but not the end to the uh, hiking cycle. So as I was saying, if it is true that financial conditions react instantaneously to a monetary policy shock, as our model is, is telling us, it means that by the middle of this year, actually the financial conditions would be stimulative. And there, there actually is a much more disinflationary effect in the pipeline after the middle of this year. And so I see a serious risk that maybe sometime next year, the Fed will have to reaccelerate rate hike another cycle, actually continuation yeah, so, so, of the unfinished uh, shot from this you know, cycle. I'm, I'm, 
again, largely in agreement with uh, with your your view. I, I think one of the big things and one of the big um, you know necessary conditions for the Federal Reserve to um, to cut interest rates almost at any time during this particular cycle is not only having inflation coming down toward their target, but also have seeing um, you know wages start to fall and, and probably uh, negative employment prints. So you know unemployment starting to rise a, a little bit, and you have not seen any of that yet. Um, how do you respond to people who are looking at a lot of the um, information from from S and P 500 earnings calls, from things like the challenger job cuts going up, where the, the tech sector cutting a lot of jobs. Um, I know in aggregate that you know it's not necessarily massive compared to the overall economy, but um, those are you know pr- reasonably well-paying jobs. It's one of the highest income sectors uh, that that we have. So so you know are there any chinks, and and what would you be looking for um, to see if your maybe your base case scenario is is to optimistic and and that the economy might actually fall out of bed and, and that there might be more weakness behind us um, or, or coming in the future um, than we have right now. <clears throat> so my team has been um, very steadfast in our call that there will be a recession starting around late Q3 of this year. And we have had this call unchanged since I think the second half of last year. And we were not not on the no lending camp even from in early this year because we do see some cracks happening in the labor market, as you said, these tech uh, layoffs, right? And it's not as isolated as people think it is. I think um, we're, you're starting to see um, layoffs spreading to the manufacturing jobs, um, to media companies. Um, and the reason why we haven't seen um, actual weakness in the jobs numbers is because it actually takes time for these layoffs, which you read in the news, to translate into actually bad unemployment numbers. So we, we, we dig deep deeply into this. We look at these state level war notices where large employers have to file to the state labor uh, department um, with at least a 30-day notice uh, when they are about to lay off people. And in these filings, it tells you when would be the effective date of the layoff, where there'll be no more severance, no more pay. Because as long as a person receives severance, severance, he's still counted in the job smart report, that, for example, the report that you're going to get um, next Friday. Um, so we think that the, the actual jobs numbers is going to show some more clear, clearer weaknesses in the April and May jobs report, given the lags of these, you know, tech layoffs um, to uh, actual economic numbers. So the cracks were there even before the credit crunch, uh, I mean, potential credit crunch. Um, in terms of the severity of this potential credit crunch, we are also not in the camp that sees this credit crunch as morphing into something major. Our base case is still for this credit crunch to um, um, last into the second quarter of this year. Um, And if you look at the lending standard, the tightening of lending standard already rose significantly before the collapse of SVP. 
be. So the marginal impact from this uh, SVB collapse, given that a lot of that change already happened, tightening already happened, we see this marginal changes being, you know, I think it actually is dwarfed by what happened already, was what's already in the pipeline. So I would say that the collapse and in, in, in SVB and what happened since then does not change my outlook for the second half uh, for, for the US this year. We still see um, uh, a recession and partly because maybe because already in our baseline, we saw we the models at least are as predicting that things would have has to be bro broken. Something will have broke been broken before September of this year. That's what our models are saying. Great. Well, thank you so much. That was Anna Wong, the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Anna, thanks for coming back on Fic Focus. Now we're going to go to William Hoffman to talk about our interest rate intro segment, where he will ask me a question related, even if it's tangentially, uh, about the U.S. rates market, and I will attempt to answer it. Will. Hey, Ira. Thank you for having me, as always. So given the rocky road we've been on over the last few weeks, uh, the banking sector has shockingly been a very hot topic. So I thought I'd focus on something you and I have discussed over the last few days. And that's the fact that bank net interest margins have remained relatively robust despite a heavily inverted yield curve over now a relatively extended period of time. Um, and that robustness is <laughs> emphasized when you look at it on a detrended level. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a bit about what has been driving this dynamic and maybe how you see this evolving as we move forward. Uh, particularly as it relates to the distribution and, and level of, of uh, bank reserves in the system, which everyone has been so intently focused on over the last few weeks. Yeah, thanks, Will. So I, I'd say a couple of things. So firstly, historically speaking, um, net interest margins by financial institutions have tended to increase when um, when the yield curve has been relatively steep. So looking at something like Funding costs for banks, so short-term, uh, short-term interest rates like three-month or, or overnight interest rates versus, say, five-year interest rates, um, tended to be when net interest margins wound up going up and wound up being pretty high because banks would generally borrow short-term, um, but then lend uh, longer-term and then take advantage of, um, of the slope of the yield curve. And then, and then typically when the Federal Reserve increased interest rates, you'd wind up with an inverted or flat yield curve, and then interest margins would go down because the short-term bank borrowing costs would go up. Um, so a couple of things happened over the past decade that actually has changed that dynamic. Number one is the implementation of Basel III capital rules, things like the net stable funding ratio and the liquidity coverage ratio and some other um, capital effects have meant that, that banks actually have termed out some of their debt, number one. And number two, um, they, they've been incentivized to hold more in terms of deposits versus using other short-term instruments like commercial paper or uh, the repurchase agreement market. So, so they, so in general, uh, banks have been less sensitive to uh, short-term interest rates for their funding costs. Now that that's probably changed a little bit over the the recent weeks because they, they want to hold on to their deposits instead of letting those deposits flow out of the of their um, of their liabilities and go to say two A seven money market mutual funds that have you know interest rates that are five four or five percent higher than some uh, some deposit rates. So so you're now starting to see a slight uptick in the interests um, that that banks pay on on deposits. But but generally what's happened is that net interest margins now have been climbing as as uh, banks get paid for interest on reserves. So that's the second piece of the puzzle here, where back in uh, back during um, 
the financial crisis, the, uh, um, the, the Dodd-Frank bailout gave the Federal Reserve the right to uh, pay interest on, on reserve balances as a, as a tool to maintain interest rates within the monetary policy band. But one of the effects of that has been uh, in, the re in recent cycles, in the last two cycles, both when the Fed was increasing interest rates in 2017, 2018, as well as in the recent period, is that you've actually seen net interest margins in aggregate for the banks go up. Now, there is a distributional issue here, Will, that we have to be very cognizant of, and that's that um, it's basically you're talking about maybe 10 to a dozen banks that actually hold a significant amount of reserves and are benefiting from the fact that, uh, that um, the Fed is paying interest on reserves, whereas other institutions similar to the ones that you know had had issues don't have a lot of bank reserves um, and and aren't really uh, and are still uh, operating where uh, w with uh, with short-term funding, being uh, uh, being an important part of their liability structure. So uh, so when when the Fed has been hiking, it's actually uh, cut into the their net interest margin. So we do have to be careful with the distributional factors of some of this analysis. And we actually put out a note on the uh, morning of, of March 29th, uh, showing the distribution of those reserves and, uh, and and those balances going up. So so I think that that's something to keep in mind, and certainly a new feature of the market given some of the uh, um, some of the trends. So again, you can throw away your your banking textbooks that were all written before 2012 because they're not going to be uh, they're going to give you an incorrect view of of how to analyze the banking sector I, I think just given some of the new dynamics that are occurring in uh, in the regulatory and uh, and and financial structure uh, with that we're at time so uh, on behalf of will Hoffman and Anna Wong I've been Ira Jersey if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to hit or guests you'd like us to have on the show please hit us up on the Bloomberg terminal and until next time be well thank you